Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to open up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Again, it is good to be with you this morning and pray the Lord will bless the remainder of our time as we open up His Word. John chapter 5, you'll remember the beginning of this chapter is the, uh, the man at Bethesda, the lame man who had been uh, crippled for 38 years and Jesus heals him, tells him to pick up his mat and to walk. The uh, Pharisees, the religious leaders there see this, it's the Sabbath day and they accuse the man of breaking the Sabbath because he's bearing a burden and they want to know who it was who told him to do this. They find out that it was Jesus and they confront him. And then Jesus enters into uh, one of the longer defenses in this book of who he is and of um, what the Lord has uh, called him to do. And so here, at least in John's gospel, here it really is where we start to see the conflict begin between Jesus and the, uh, and the religious leaders. So he begins uh, in verse 17 with an argument that he and his father um, are equal. That's how the Pharisees, that's how the Jews took it. Then he goes on to argue that the father had a very special relationship with the son And then his argument is that the father had given the son some very unique task, that is, to give life and to execute judgment. Now, we pick up in our our passage today, starting in verse 31, where we're still in, I think it's very helpful, and this is a little more maybe clear than than the last one, we're still in a courtroom type scene. Jesus has made these claims that he is equal with the Father. The Father has been working until now, and now I work. Um, that no man has known or seen the Father, but Jesus has, and he's come to do the unique work that the Father had given him to do. And then, that just as the Father had life in himself, he has given to the Son to have life in himself and authority to execute judgment. We pick up in verse 31, Jesus now shifts from giving a defense to calling four witnesses. If we're thinking about a courtroom scene, he's calling four witnesses to the witness stand, and then he'll start with a counter argument after that. So verse 31, Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than that of John, For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the Scriptures. 
For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. I receive not honor from men, but I know you, and you have not the love of God in you. I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe which receive honor one of another, and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuseth you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? So, as I said earlier, Jesus here is moving into um, an offensive argument. Okay, So on the defense... They ask or or they bring up the fact that it was unlawful for Jesus to heal this man on the Sabbath and to ask him to pick up his mat and to walk, to give him permission to bear a burden on the Sabbath. And Jesus says, it's not unlawful for me to do that. Um, The way it's summarized in Mark is that um, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He says that the Father's been working up until now and I work... And he makes these claims of a special relationship with the Father and a special task given from the Father. And then Jesus, this this whole thread is being argued in the context of Jewish law. Okay, So that's why Jesus is framing his argument the way that he's framing it. So in Old Testament law, more than one witness was needed to condemn someone to death. Okay, go back and you look at Deuteronomy 17. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, it says that the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. Well, why is that pertinent for John chapter 5? Well, in verse 18, it says that the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but he said that he said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. In Jewish law, this was blasphemy. You want to know what the penalty was for blasphemy? You know, death. So in a sense here, Jesus is on trial. It's not just that they sought to kill him in the sense that they were looking for an excuse. They had their excuse. He made himself equal with God. And so the violation of the Sabbath was a a, a violation of the law as far as the Mosaic law as they had twisted it. And they could argue about the details on all of that. But as far as the blasphemy went, that was a clear-cut case. This man has made himself equal with God. And so this is a capital offense. And so Jesus responds by giving a couple of more uh, realities about himself, a couple of more arguments about why Uh, he had the authority to do what he did. 
But in a Jewish court of law, you can't just start talking and have that mean anything. So when Jesus says in verse 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. He's not saying I'm an untrustworthy person. He's not saying my testimony is not worth anything or you shouldn't believe it simply because I'm saying it. What he's saying is, look, I understand the way this works. Just because I've said it doesn't mean that it's going to be received or doesn't mean that it's going to uh, somehow get me off the hook in this particular scenario. Under the Mosaic law, under the Jewish law, my personal testimony doesn't carry the authority to do anything. You need at least two or three witnesses. And so Jesus says, I'll give you four. I'll give you four. And so Jesus begins in verse 32 to call his witnesses to the stand, as it were, in his defense. So witness number one, John the Baptist. Starting in verse 32, he says, there is another that beareth witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You sin unto John and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but those things I say that ye might be saved. I'm sorry, but these things I say that you might be saved. He, that was John, was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. So Jesus calls John the Baptist to the witness stand, as it were. John the Baptist was, would have been a credible witness for the Jews. Okay? The Jews did not um, completely embrace uh, the message or even the testimony of John the Baptist, but they could not deny that God was at work in this man. Something was going on with John the Baptist. This takes us back to, as far as Jesus uh, calling John as a witness, this takes us again back to the prologue, John chapter 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And then John, 15, uh, John chapter 1, verse 15, John bare witness of him, that is of Christ, and he cried saying, this was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me, and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. Okay, so John bears witness to the very same things that Jesus is bearing witness to here. Before Jesus makes this argument, John had already borne witness to the fact that Jesus Christ was not only above Him or preeminent, but He was, he was before Him. This one that He came to paved the way for. 
He was with God and was God. John the Baptist had already made the argument that the Son had a special, unique relationship with the Father. It's, it's John bearing witness in 1.18 that tells us that no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He's seen Him and He's declared Him. And so Jesus here is saying, look, this is nothing new. What I'm telling you is the same thing that you heard John say, preach, proclaim. I mean, once you get past the prologue, you continue to see that John's witness is consistent with what Jesus had been witnessing about himself. And the Jews were willing to, according to Christ, they were willing to accept it for a season. They were willing to listen for a season. So you'll remember in John 1, in in verse 19, the record that John gave whenever the Jews sent their priests to go and essentially interrogate John. Who are you? What is this ministry? What are you doing? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Who are you? And this is what John says. He says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and they said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? And John answered them, verse 26, saying, I baptize with water. But there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoe latches I am not worthy to unloose. And so John's testimony to them as they came to interrogate and figure out what is this guy all about and what is he doing? Why is he baptizing? Well, he says, if you want to know who I am, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord. If you want to know why I'm baptizing, I'm baptizing with water. But there's one coming after me who is preeminent. And while I baptize with water, okay, he who is coming after me, his, I'm not even worthy to unloose his shoe latchets. I'm, I'm not even unworthy to be just a menial slave. He's among you now, and he's coming. The Pharisees or the Jews might say, sure, John said all that, but how are we supposed to know that it was you? Now, you know I'm kind of being facetious when I say that, because a couple of verses later, In verse 29, it says, The next day, John, seeing Jesus coming unto him, said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. Here's what Jesus is saying. Number one, Uh, He's being crystal clear about his claims. So when he says, my father has worked 
up until this point, and now I'm working. And it says the Pharisees took that as him claiming equality with God. Jesus is saying, yes, you got it. That's right. That's what I'm saying. There's a little more to that. Not only is there equality with God, I have a special relationship with him that no one else in the universe has, and he's given me a special task that no one else could ever do. And then they say, wait a minute, what? And then Jesus says, essentially, why are you acting so surprised? I'm just saying the same thing John the Baptist was saying. This is nothing new. John said this to you. He, he told you that one was coming who was preferred over him. And then at the day of his baptism, John flat out said, that's him. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The special task that the Lord had given Jesus that no one else could do. At least the first half of that. And then he goes on to say, that's the one I was talking about whenever I said, he that comes after me is preferred before me. That's him. So as Jesus argues with these Jews, or maybe I should say as he presents his case and he calls John the Baptist to the stand, essentially he's saying, I'm not saying anything that John the Baptist hasn't already said. Now, why is that a credible argument? Well, partially because in Matthew chapter 3, look there in Matthew 3, Let me read it and then we'll make our point here. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 5. It says, Then went out to him, that is John the Baptist, Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruit, meat for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up the children unto Abraham, and now also the axe is laid into the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not fruit... Uh, not forth, good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, I'm going to stop there, although we can keep going. Here's the scene in Matthew 3. John the Baptist is baptizing. He's paving the way. He's calling for the people to confess their sin. And it says, and this is important in light of Matthew, um, sorry, John chapter 5, that all Judea and all the region round about the Jordan were coming to John. All that means is John was a very popular figure. Now this plays into John chapter 5 um, on a couple of different levels, but one in verse 44, which we'll probably look at this afternoon, 
Jesus, this is John 5, 44, Jesus rebuking the Jews says, how can you believe which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that cometh from God only? One of the, one of the uh, counter arguments that Jesus lays to the Jews is that you're so worried about receiving honor from men that that's all you really care about. Yes, you were willing to hear John for a season. Why? Because everybody else was. It was the, it was the thing to do. The people all um, flocked to John. Not only were they willing to hear John, but as far as Matthew chapter 3 and John the Baptist's response to them, generation of vipers, um, after they had come to his baptism, generation of vipers, who has warned you from to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth, therefore, fruits, meat for repentance. The implication there is that they would have even been baptized by John if he would have done it. I mean, there was no reason for John to say it just to say it. And so Jesus says, I'm calling to the witness stand John the Baptist, a man whom the people received. And this is sort of a um, implicit dig at the Pharisees, but it's not just a dig just for the dig's sake. It's exposing what his counter argument is going to be, that you're more worried about honor from men than you are honor from God. The whole problem here with uh, uh, the Sabbath breaking kind of a thing, the whole problem with uh, the mindset that says this paralytic who had not walked or, or, or had mobility in 38 years was miraculously healed in a way that um, uh, had not happened and he was able to pick up this little mat and all you can do is say, hey, what are you doing? You know it's against our law for you to bear a burden on the Sabbath. Who told you to do that? Why were they so strict? Because they received honor from one another. Pharisee number one says, hey, what are you doing carrying that mat? And then Pharisee number two says, ooh, that brother is sound. He's sound. You know, we live in an age of compromise, but not him. I'm thankful we got that guy on our team. He's not going to let these guys get by with this liberal burden carrying on the Sabbath. He's sound. And Pharisee number one says, you know, I am sound. You know. Jesus says, you receive honor from men. And you're so wrapped up in that, you can't believe the clear Messiah who's standing right in front of you. We'll get to that more in a minute. Not only was John the Baptist popular in the sense that he was drawing crowds that people believed what he was saying, that God was blessing his ministry. He had obviously called him to something. Um, Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 11, that of those born among women, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived. This is Jesus' stamp of approval on John the Baptist. Now, 
he makes a he makes a point here as he calls John to the witness stand, and as it were, says, "Give us your testimony of who this man is." And John says, "Well, he's the Lamb of God that takes away the." The sin of the world. He's the one that I said that was preeminent, the one who was before me. And then, as it were, he brings the people into account. What's your witness of John the Baptist? Oh, we all flocked to him. It wasn't just us, it was also the Jews. They were going too, and, and they even wanted to be baptized. And John said, Not until you bring forth fruit, meat for repentance. And then we also have, as far as John goes, the witness of Jesus saying he was the greatest prophet that was among men. But then Jesus also gives this little, this is not in order, but he gives this little caveat in here, this little tidbit in verse 34. After he says in verse 33, you sent unto John and he bear witness unto the truth. Jesus says in verse 34, but I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that ye might be saved. Okay, so Jesus is not saying, I could care less about what John says. Okay, John's ministry was to bear witness of him. That was a God called ministry. He had a very special place. We just saw where Jesus said that he was the greatest prophet. But here's the point that Jesus is making. Just in case you think I'm stacking the deck with John, we're cousins and all. John was sent for your benefit, not mine. You could take John off the witness stand and I've still got three. He's saying this is not, uh, I'm not receiving this testimony from man as my soul's source. You could do away with this one. But we sent John... And I'm saying these things. And John was sent to bear witness of these things. Not for me, but for you. It's, it's really the same argument that he would use in Mark whenever he would say, um, man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for man. Uh, this is for your benefit. These were things that you needed to hear. This was a revelation that you needed to receive about me. And so witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness to the deity of Christ. Witness to this reality that Christ has this unique relationship with the Father and has been called to unique task or unique ministry. John the Baptist confirms that with his witness. Witness number two, verse 36. But I have greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father hath given me to finish. The same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Witness number two, Jesus' works. The things that they had seen Him do. I mean... Number one, just in this very chapter. These people saw him heal a man who hadn't walked in 38 years. Jesus says, my works bear witness 
to my testimony or to John's testimony. And this is something that Jesus will point to several times throughout the Gospel of John. I'm not going to go to all of them, but I will go to one more, one that you may be familiar with. In, in John 10, John chapter 10, verse 23, it says that Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. So they're still after him. They want to condemn him for blasphemy. They're trying to get another confession. How long are you going to make us wait? If you're Christ, tell us. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name they bear witness of me. Again, Jesus points to the witness of his works. There was never a man who spoke like this man. There was, a never, there was never a man who, who did the things that he did, even from a in his just in his human earthly ministry, as far as healing and these miraculous signs and works. This is not the first time that this is even brought up in the Gospel of John. You remember what Nicodemus said in John 3? Nicodemus, who was a ruler of the Jews, possibly the teacher of Israel. John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he said unto him, Rabbi, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, this gives us a little bit of an inside scoop as to, again, why Jesus ends this this chapter the way that he does. Nicodemus comes, he doesn't say, I know. He says, we know. Well, who's the we? The rulers of the Jews. We know that you've come from God. No one can do the things that you're doing unless God is with them. And so the question is, then why didn't they believe him? And Jesus says, it's because you're more interested in receiving honor from men than honor from God. That's why. You're more interested in propping yourself up using God's law and God's word to prop up your own glory rather than the glory of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, whom He sent, whom His works bear witness that He is who He claims to be. So Jesus says, you can take John out of the equation if you would like to, because witness number two stands alone, and that is the works that I do that the Father sent me to do. Look in Acts chapter 2. This this argument doesn't go away. Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22... 
the middle of Peter's message here, Pentecost, Acts 2.22, he says, You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves know. Now, Peter here is preaching a, a, a sermon that is headed toward the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay? He's going to talk about Jesus Christ being the, the, uh, the, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ being the only way of salvation, and this is where he starts. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is approved of God, or we could say vindicated by God. In other words, God is justifying what He has said about this man. How? By these miracles and wonders and signs that He did among you. You saw them. God was doing these through Him for you. That's where, Jesus, or that's where uh, Peter starts. He says whenever we're looking for a witness to verify the claims of Christ, His works will do just fine. His works will do just fine. No man can do the things that He did. We're not even talking, at this point, we're not even talking about the cross. We're not even talking about the uh, resurrection. We're not talking about those things yet. Those things definitely are included, but He's just talking about his earthly ministry, the things that he did. I mean, Romans chapter 1 would talk about the fact that he claimed to be the, the, the Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. But it's Jesus' works. The fact that he was able to do things that confirmed that he was who he said he was. So, witness one, John the Baptist. Witness two, Jesus' works themselves. Witness number three, starting in verse 37. He says, And the Father Himself, which hath sent Me, hath borne witness of Me. You have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His shape, and you have not His word abiding in you. For whom He hath sent, Him ye believe not. So Jesus says, witness number three, God the Father. God the Father. The Father bears witness of these things, that is, of these claims of who I am. Again, whenever we look at this argument here in John 5, many of these arguments are going to be replicated again in, in coming chapters um, in John. So, for instance, in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, Jesus is in a similar dispute, but in verse 16, John chapter 8, verse 16, he says, and yet if I judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I and the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. 
and then they go on and begin to insult Jesus based on that. But here's the here's the claim again that the father bears witness to the reality that number one, Jesus is equal with the father. Number two, that he has a special, unique relationship with the father. Number three, that the father has given him a unique role, unique task to accomplish. So whenever we say all these witnesses are bearing witness to something, we're not saying they're bearing witness to something in general. They're bearing witness to something very specific. Okay, These testimonies are all lining up and they're all testifying about the same things. That's what Jesus is claiming. So, again, back to Matthew 3. Back to Matthew 3. I mean, we could, we could ask, how is it that the Father has borne witness? And we could say, well, He did that in, in Scripture, and that is true, and, and Scripture is witness number four, so we're not going to spend a ton of time trying to hit that one in, in this category. But how is it that the Father bears witness? That Jesus is who He says He is. Now, it's, it's important and helpful that we remember one of the, one of the things that Jesus says um, in, in John 5.37 about the Father bearing witness. In verse 37, He says, He's the one who sent me. He has borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard His voice at any time nor seen His shape. So Jesus is saying this, you, you, you haven't had a direct message from the Father. I have. You don't have this direct relationship with the Father, but I do. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 3, they do hear a direct message from the Father. Okay. Jesus is baptized here. And when John the Baptist baptizes Christ, it says in verse 16, that when he was baptized, he went straightway up out of the water and lo, the heavens were opened unto him and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now you remember at the beginning of John chapter 5, they, that what they pounced on as far as condemning Jesus was, he said, my father works up until now and now I work. And they say, he calls God his father, making himself equal with God. Okay. Well, here the father says, this is my beloved son. This is, a, this is a voice directly from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus says, go back to that day where witness number one, John the Baptist, was baptizing me in the Jordan. And whatever else you want to do, you cannot deny that after that happened, the heavens opened up and a voice came down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now you may argue it was somebody else, but you're probably not going to do that in public. Okay, the people who were there would have remembered that. The people who were there were bearing witness to this fact. 
Jesus says, not only do I call John the Baptist, not only do I call my works, but I call my Father to the witness stand who has already borne witness of me. Not only that, this is just sort of a side note, but it's still worth pointing out. Not only did God the Father bear witness to who Jesus was, but a long, long time ago from John chapter 5, all the way back in Isaiah, chapter 53, the Father bears witness to how the Jews would receive Jesus. He bore witness to the fact that this kind of exchange they were having in John chapter 5 was going to be a normal thing for him. Isaiah 53, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Well, there's plenty that goes into the fulfillment of that prophecy, but John chapter 5 is part of that. Who has believed our report? Well, the answer in John chapter 5 is not the Jews, not these guys. They, they don't believe the testimony of John. They don't believe the testimony of his works. And they don't even believe the testimony of the Father. And so Jesus says, if it were just me saying this, then you could dismiss it and that would be lawful. But it's not just me. It's John. It's my works. It's my Father. And then we get to witness number four. The Scriptures. Verse 39. Search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. Okay, Jesus says, search the Scriptures. Now you can take that phrase in a couple of different ways. And... Commentators are undecided on which way it should be understood. Either way, it doesn't really change the meaning, but you can take it as an imperative, as if Jesus is saying, you go diligently search the Scriptures and see what you find. But some say it shouldn't be taken as an imperative. It should be taken as Jesus saying, look, you of all people search the Scriptures diligently. You should know this. And it's true, they did search the Scriptures diligently. They, they, they had the, the first five books memorized. They knew the, um, the, what we would call the Old Testament inside and out. Jesus says, search them. In them you think you have eternal life, but they are those which testify of me. In other words, in some ways, if it's the latter, if it's the... If it's the sense in which he's saying, you spend your time diligently searching the Scriptures, this is something you already do, which it was, then in some sense, Jesus is saying, 
you guys ought to be embarrassed. This is one of those huge, can't see the forest for the trees type moments. You know it inside and out. Matthew 25 or Matthew 23, you tithe both mint and cumin. I mean, you're serious about all the details and all this stuff. And yet you miss the whole thing because you miss the forest for the trees. Search the scriptures, he says, because they testify of me. In, in Luke 24, Luke chapter 24. This is Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He's walking with his two disciples and they are telling him what happened and he's asking them some questions and, and they get finished. And in verse 25, of course, they don't know it's Jesus. In verse 25, it says, He said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into His glory? And in verse 27, And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Here's the, here's the claim. The claim from John 5.39. The claim from Luke 24.25.27 is that from Genesis to Revelation, all of Scripture testifies of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes people can take that and get really creative and um, try to make everybody or every little detail or whatever something. And we'll look categorically. I think it's, it's easier and, and probably more beneficial to understand this claim categorically than, than to try to um, go detail by detail. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, you can find similarities in Old Testament stories um, that may or may not be intended to point to Christ. Um, so is... You know, is Christ the greater Samson? Well, sure. But you could say that about every single figure in the Old Testament. Okay, so I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. I'm just saying I don't really think that's what he's talking about here. I don't think when he says search the scriptures uh, in them, you find you think you find life, but they are they which testify of me. I don't think that's a challenge for you to see if you can get 50 parallels out of every Old Testament character to Christ. I think big picture term he's saying everything that you find both thematically either directly or indirectly all of these things are pushing the redemptive narrative to the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay? Look in Galatians chapter 3. That's how Galatians 3 understands this This point, And I think it's a point that's worth kind of clarifying because there have been times where people get carried away spiritualizing things and they end up just coming up with some silly things that probably were never intended. 
Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. Galatians 3, 19. Paul says, Wherefore then serveth the law? What was the purpose of the law, he says? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the land, in the hand, I'm sorry, of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scriptures have concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterwards be revealed. And then here it is. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So here, uh, Paul is bearing witness to the fact that the Scriptures testify of Jesus, but what Paul does here, and he does it in a specific way, this is not the only way it occurs, but he does it in a specific way to the Galatians, and he says the law was given, and it was given as a schoolmaster. In other words, the law was given to push us, to open our eyes, to reveal to us that we needed a Savior. The law was never given to us so that we would rest in the law. We were never given the commandments. We were never given the law so that we could somehow work our way up to a righteous standing with the Lord. But what he's laying out to the Galatians is that uh, the law for us, number one, articulated the fact that God was holy. Number two, articulated God's holy standard. Number three, gave us a way to measure ourselves by that standard. Number four, bring us to the point that we realized I can't measure up and I need someone else. That's what the law was intended to do. That's one of the ways as we think about searching the scriptures and them testifying of Christ. That's one of the ways that we have biblical authority to say that that works. But that's not the only way. Okay, the Scriptures testify of Jesus Christ prophetically. Right? It was His heel that would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3. The Scriptures testify of Christ typologically in, in types and shadows. Right? He's the second Adam. He's the one who would tabernacle among us, that Old Testament tabernacle, the temple. All the instruments that were used there, Jesus will, will make use of those in in uh, the Gospel of John. And so he was the second Adam. He's the tabernacle. He's the temple. He's the priest. He's the lamb. All these typological ways that Scriptures are pointing to Christ. Thematically, the Scriptures continually point to Christ. He's the Redeemer of Israel. Whether that's through the judges or through the kings or, or um, through God's providence and working through Cyrus to send him back from Babylon, however that is, Jesus Christ was the figure that all of these people were pointing to and figuring. Thematically, He's the Redeemer of Israel. He's the King who will rule in righteousness. 
directly. As far as the Scriptures, the Old Testament pointing to Him in a direct way. He's that Isaiah 53 suffering servant. He's that Daniel 7 son of man who comes in clouds of glory. Who sets up a throne. Indirectly. Just in a sweeping way. Every single failure in the Old Testament points for the need of Jesus Christ. David, who is a man after God's own heart, and then falls to commit adultery with Bathsheba, and then builds a track record in the last half of his life that's just pitiful, reveals our need for a greater king. Someone greater than David. Israel, who just could not get it right, They didn't need a new resolve. They didn't need to buckle down. They needed a savior. They needed someone who would come and do what they could not do. And that is love the Lord their God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. But the Pharisees were blind to that. They refused to believe it. And we'll come back this afternoon and look at why. And so, again, John chapter 5, back there for our closing. The Pharisees, or the Jews, bring a charge that Jesus is blasphemed, which is worthy of death. And Jesus says, I have not blasphemed. I am equal with the Father. I have a unique relationship with Him that no one else on the planet has. I've been given a unique task from him to carry out. And I'm not the only one who says that. John the Baptist has been saying it for a long time. My works bear witness to the reality. My father has borne witness to the reality. And scripture bears witness to the reality that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. So the question is, what do you do with the four witnesses that Christ calls to bear? We know what the Jews did. The Jews would not believe because they esteemed the honor of men over and above the honor of God. Jesus gives this phrase, it's a phrase that is worth parking and spending a lot of time on, but we can't. In verse 40, you will not come to me that you might have life, even though the scriptures bear witness to this and all these and all the other ones do as well. You refuse to come to me that you might have life. Jesus says, in light of all the evidence that I've given you, you you refuse. This is a category that we ought to sharpen and have in our minds. Unbelief is never passive. Unbelief is never passive. Sometimes people, whenever they're wrestling with predestination and election, and well, it just isn't fair. And it's almost as, and, 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 and these people never had a chance. It's almost as if they're passive in the whole thing. Unbelief is never passive. Rejecting Christ is never passive. Left to ourselves, we would all actively reject God and His Son, Jesus Christ. 
And it's only in His mercies that we're given a new heart and a new will that can receive spiritual things. But the point is that unbelief is not passive. It's a matter of the will. It's an active refusal. It's always an active rejection. Unbelief is always a result of the fact that men love darkness more than light. And they will not bring themselves into the light that their deeds might be exposed. And so the question for us this morning is that in light of the witness of Scripture, in light of the witness of the Father, in light of the witness of the works of Christ, and in light of the witness of John the Baptist, where are you? What do you do with Jesus' testimony? He told the Pharisees and the scribes that they searched the Scriptures in hopes of finding life. Is that where you are? Because it's not there. Life is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, my prayer this morning is that if you have never accepted the testimony of the Father, of Scripture, of Christ, that the Lord would bless you to do that today. And that the testimony of Scripture would bear witness with your heart that you might profess Him and that you might follow Him. If you have professed faith, then my prayer is that your profession would be strengthened by the four witnesses that Jesus calls to bear this morning. That your hope would be placed on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let's pray. Father, um, we say this often, but we mean it. We, we thank You for Your Word. For a clear light. We thank You, Lord, for John chapter 5. For the witnesses that You've given that bear witness who Your Son is. What You would have us to believe and embrace about Him. So Father, if there are those here who have never professed faith in Christ, we pray that through the power of Your Spirit that You would awaken their hearts to these realities and that they would love the light more than darkness and that they would bring themselves into the light. For those of us who professed faith a long time ago, I pray that our faith would be strengthened by the Word that we've read and received today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.